We're going to turn to our Bibles. Please turn with me to the second letter of Paul to Timothy. And a very, very slight change to what's on the screens. We will read from 2 Timothy chapter 1, but we'll just read the first seven verses. and, uh, And then we'll go on to another reading just slightly further on in our Bibles. Uh, Page 1197, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, and we'll read the first seven verses, and then we'll move on uh, to another reading after that. But let's hear what uh, the Apostle Paul wrote as the Holy Spirit inspired him. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And maybe keeping one finger in that passage, which we're going to turn back to in a moment, turn on just a couple of pages or so to the letter to Titus, which follows Second Timothy, and we'll read the second chapter, the second chapter of Titus. It's just a few pages further on in our Bibles. And as Paul instructed Timothy, in a similar way, he instructs Titus. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith 
so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And turning back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, I read for one final time, and it will be the final time that we look at this passage. Uh, verse 7, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This whole letter is written by the Apostle Paul to beloved Timothy, a young man who seems to have been particularly susceptible to a spirit of fear, of timidity, of nervousness. And Paul, who himself knows a great deal experientially about fear in different situations, is nevertheless strengthening Timothy's hand in the Lord as he writes this letter. Now, we said last Sunday evening as we looked at this verse, there are these three characteristics of the spirit that God gives to his own people. It's a spirit of power. And we said that that power is entirely the power of God. It's not of us. We have no power of our own that we can lay claim to and exercise autonomously. If we did, it would not be God's power. But then the love that Paul speaks about is a love that is in the heart of God and that also fills the heart of God's people as they minister and serve one another and as they love and serve God himself. But the third of these is self-control. I had planned to talk about that last Sunday as my third point, but it seemed a rather large topic to deal with then. I thought I would leave it all for just one message here this evening. Tonight's theme is self-control. And I thought to myself, what would be a most helpful framework for thinking about self-control? And uh, it's not perhaps clear from the passage. So I, in a sense, I get inspiration from what we sang just now. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. I want to think about self-control in a Trinitarian fashion tonight. Okay? But in a slightly unusual order. Starting with the Father, then going to the Spirit and then going to the Son. You might ask, why? Why are you doing this? Well, maybe it'll become clear uh, as, as we go through. 
But we're thinking about self-control. And my first point then is self-control and God the Father. How? How do we tackle it then? Let me explain. Man is made in the image of God. You and I are all made in the image of God. We are made to be like God. And what is God like? Well, he's lots of things. He's infinite things, isn't he, God? But here's one description of God. God governs his own decisions and actions. And this is true of God in an absolute sense. Everything that God does, he does with entire sovereign freedom and independence. Who has been his counselor that God should consult anybody? God works out his own purposes without the need to ask permission or authority from anybody higher than him, for there is none higher than God. King Nebuchadnezzar, you may remember, found out to his own cost that God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand. No one can, as it were, stop God from acting or say to God, what have you done? What right do you have to do anything? In other words, our God is always active and never passive. God always acts rather than being acted upon. And some theologians will use the language of the impassibility of God. God cannot suffer the actions done to him by anybody else. He is entirely active in all that he does. Now immediately and rightly, you would say and I would say, but we're not like that, are we? We're so different. Because although we are active, we are also passive. We do things and we have things that are done to us. You and I will never meet anybody in this life, any human being who is 100% active and never passive, unless he is some tyrant living on some island in a palace with thousands of servants doing exactly what he wants all the time without questioning him, and no such person really, really exists. But understand this. We're thinking about self-control this evening, and there is a sense in which we should, we should be like God in our own capacity for self-control. What do I mean? We should exercise the mastery of self-control over our own lives as far as we are able to do so. We do not have, we cannot have, we never will even in eternity have the sovereign freedom that God exercises, will we? And yet we do exercise free agency. And self-control is part of that freedom that we have as responsible and accountable beings. We are not to be slaves to passions. 
We are not to be puppets in the hands of other people or other influences. Isn't it striking that as I read from the second chapter of Titus, Paul says repeatedly to all these various groups of people in the church there in Crete that they are all to be self-controlled. Self-control is one great hallmark of a mature Christian. Self-control is explicitly applied in that chapter to older men and younger women and younger men. And then in verse 12, it's specifically applied to all people. All are to be self-controlled. Now, let me, let me apply this now to your life and mine. How, how and where will you and I exercise self-control? The answer is, in all those areas where I have the ability, the capacity, and the freedom to do so. Let me give four examples. I can't control what other people might say to me. But I can control what I say back to them. And I can control the tone of my voice and the timing of my response, as well as the people I decide to speak to and how much or how little information I want to pass on to them. I and you are in control of the faculty of our speech. And it seems to me that speech is one very key area where self-control is needed. Another example. I can't control what might, what might be on television tonight or tomorrow night, or what might be on catch-up, or on various DVDs, or, or Netflix, or, or YouTube, or all sorts of viewing platforms. I can't control the vast selection of what might be available for me to watch, but I can control what I decide to watch. And I can decide whether watching a particular program would be a good use of my time, and indeed the time of others who live in my own household. I can't control how much time I might have before a certain deadline, or how much energy I might have, or how much time I might have, or how much money I might have. But I can control, and I should control, what I do with my money, or my time, or my energy. I should exercise self-control. In that I'm like God, and you are like God. And let's come back to Timothy for our fourth illustration. I can't control, and neither could Timothy, cannot control those, those feelings of alarm or fear that cascade upon my mind when I think about that person or that ministry or that responsibility. And throughout the life of a Christian, these fears and alarms may be coming back again and again and again. And I can't control their intensity or their frequency. They hit me. They, they roll upon me. They're like waves that come at me. And I can't stop them. But I can control the decision to carry out my ministry, to be faithful to that responsibility, to not shirk from talking to that particular person. In all areas like this, 
we are to exercise a godlike self-control, a power over ourselves. We are to be self-governing individuals. There's a story of the famous ancient Greek philosopher Socrates, the one who came before Plato and I believe was Plato's teacher and Plato in turn was Aristotle's teacher. But Socrates was one of these great Greek philosophers. And uh, one day a a physiognomist came to uh, examine Socrates' face. What is a physiognomist, I hear you all thinking? A physiognomist is somebody who looks at the features of a person's face and the, the lines on their face and the shape of their face to try and determine something about that person's character. And the physiognomist looked at Socrates' face carefully and then said, well, this man must be a man with a very irritable nature and a very bad temper, easily aroused to anger. And Socrates' disciples laughed and said, what? You don't know what this man's like. He's the most mild-mannered, gentle, controlled person you've ever met. He can control his temper. He's not irritable at all. And Socrates explained, it was by his own mastery of philosophy that he had been able to conquer what was his natural inclination to irritability. And that suggests a question to me. If a man by philosophy can conquer natural irritability, how much more for a Christian should the spirit of self-control enable us to master our passions and to control the way we act? That's self-control and God the Father. But we move on, you see, now to thinking about self-control and God the Spirit. And this is where we get to more applications. God has given his people a spirit of self-control. What does that actually mean? What does spirit mean? What does spiritual mean? We often, many people often, misunderstand spirit and spiritual to make it mean something more like emotional or even mystical. What does it look like for somebody to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Is it going into some kind of emotional autopilot so that my mind and my mood are, are, are taken over spontaneously by some wonderful glowing feeling that I'm lifted up above the common experiences of mankind and I kind of float through life in a wonderful way because I'm filled with the Spirit and the Spirit just lifts me onto cloud nine and I find that I'm in a state of ecstasy and it's wonderful and I feel so warm and loving and glowing towards everybody and life doesn't have a single care for me. Is that what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Sometimes we talk about people who are high-spirited 
and we mean there's a kind of natural exuberance about them, an ebullience about them. They, they feel good, and they make other people feel good, and we'd love to be like that all the time. If only we could all feel like that, and others could feel like that all the time, wouldn't life be so much easier? You see, we often think of the Spirit, and we kind of short-circuit things to our feelings straight away. We'd love to feel good all the time, wouldn't we? But is that what it means to be spiritual? No. For a Christian to have the Spirit, or to be spiritual, is not about our feelings. We're on much safer territory when we think in terms of our minds, our wills, our actions, not our emotions. Not our feelings. Remember Jesus when he spoke to the disciples on the night before he was crucified. He said he called the Spirit, not only the Holy Spirit, but he called him the Spirit of truth. Remember that. What is this spirit of self-control that is in God's people? It is the mind of Christ given to us so that we might think biblically. There was once a pastor whose wife would sometimes get quite anxious, and he would say to his wife very frequently, think biblically. Think biblically. That's what it means. Think biblically in terms of how to conduct the whole of life, (coughs) our use of time, our use of words, our use of money, Our use of everything, according to the mind of Christ revealed in the Bible. This is the spirit that God gives to us, says Paul. Not just to me and you, Timothy, but to every believer. Now, what is this spirit of self-control? What does it actually look like inside a person? Well, the spirit of self-control is the spirit of a sane and sober mind. That's what it is. And there are two particularly powerful examples of where the language of self-control is used in the New Testament. One of them should be very familiar to us from last Sunday morning. You remember the Gerasenes demoniac, the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons, How was he? What was his condition after Jesus had cast out that legion? Well, we know the answer, if we remember last Sunday morning. There he was, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And that word right mind in the original Greek is very much the same word as means self-controlled. He was sober-minded. He was in possession of his senses. Like the prodigal son, you might say. He had come to himself. He was no longer being driven around madly and wildly and frantically. But there was a calmness and a control and an alertness about his whole disposition that had not been there for many, many years. He was in his right mind. He was exercising self-control in his mind. And then we have another powerful example. We have Paul himself in the book of Acts in chapter 26, and he's in front of Agrippa the king and in front of the Roman governor 
Festus. And you may remember that Paul is speaking and preaching and defending himself, a prisoner on trial, and he's talking about Jesus being the first to rise from the dead and to appear to his own people and to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And at that point, Festus, the Roman governor, interrupts Paul and says, Paul, you are beside yourself. All your learning is driving you mad. You're a madman. You're raving. You're, you're, you're off your trolley. You're off your rocker. You're, you're, you're not balanced. You've lost your sanity, man. What's wrong with you? And Paul says to him, I am not mad. Most noble Festus, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking words of truth and soberness. I'm anything but mad. I've never been more sane than I am now. The gospel has made me sane. The Spirit of God in me gives me the spirit of sanity and of self-control. This is what the spirit of self-control is all about. To be in possession of a right mind. But I think at this point there are all sorts of questions and difficulties that might come into our minds. Does this sound like something that is attainable only to a few? Does every Christian, every person have it in them to be as sane and self-controlled as that. Now, what about some examples of where things might not be so straightforward? What about physical or mental illness? What about temperamental variations? Let me deal with some of these briefly, just for a few moments. You know, there are illnesses which are categorized as physical, and others are categorized as mental. But in some cases, you know, the boundary between physical and mental is very, very hard to actually draw because we are a psychosomatic whole. What does that mean? Our minds and our bodies are one. And that is so true from the Scriptures, and it's so true in the understanding of many uh, very wise doctors and psychiatrists today. But let me give one or two examples. Here is a Christian who is undergoing an epileptic seizure. Of course you wouldn't say to somebody like that, stop, pull yourself together. God's given you a spirit of self-control. Stop what you're doing. That would be cruel. That would be utterly inappropriate. They can't help themselves, can they? And then there might be other Christians who suffer from different conditions, mental conditions like psychosis, or schizophrenia, which affect their behavior in all sorts of harmful ways. And it's a more complex illness. But our attitude towards people suffering in that way should be exactly the same, that they really cannot control what they are doing when they're in the grip of a condition of that kind. But let's change the picture now to somebody who is pretty much like Timothy, shall we? I don't think Timothy is certified as mentally or physically ill, other than perhaps his weak stomach. But Timothy is, like many of us, temperamentally prone to worry, 
to anxiety, to fear? How does the spirit of self-control apply to someone like him? Can we not see that in Paul's second letter to Timothy, there is a wonderful combination of what we might call tenderness and toughness. This second letter to Timothy is probably the warmest, gentlest, most patient letter that Paul ever wrote. I read from the first seven verses of Second Timothy, and you can see there the, 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 the clear tenderness in Paul's heart that is flowing out towards Timothy. I remember your tears. I remember your mother and your grandmother. I remember your faith. I long to see you. I'm burdened for you, beloved Timothy. I know how it is with you. There's great tenderness with him, isn't there? Tender love being shown towards a young man who is temperamentally rather unsettled. But combined with that tenderness is tough love. And it's seen there in the imperatives that Paul gives to Timothy throughout this letter. He tells him what he needs to do. Fan into flame the gift of God. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Follow the pattern of the sound words you've heard from me. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Fan, share, follow, remember, do these things. You see, if Paul was only tender, he might say to Timothy something like this, Oh, Timothy, oh, you... Poor thing, Timothy. Just, you've had it really hard. You don't need to do anything, Timothy. Oh, stop. Take it easy. Just, just lie in bed all day. Don't, don't worry. God will do things without you. You don't need to worry about any of this work. Just, just, just stop. And life's so hard for you, Timothy. Just cease all your activity and uh, you'll feel better and I care for you. He doesn't do that. But neither does Paul say to Timothy, come on, Timothy, get on with it. What are you doing? Why are you waiting? You lazy so-and-so, come on, you should be up and about your work now. There's neither of those two extremes. There is instead, there is this combination of the tender heart and the tough heart, the tender love and the tough love. You see, Paul doesn't focus with Timothy on feelings. He doesn't tell him to, how to feel or what to feel. Instead, he tells Timothy what he ought to do. And that's very practically helpful. When you or I feel low and strained and weary and anxious and bewildered, often just sitting around doing nothing might seem right, but it's not helpful for us at all. If we've got the energy, we should, we should try and do something do something is better than nothing. And very often when motivation to do something is very, very low, we feel disinclined, our, our hands hang loose, our knees are giving way, and we, we just don't have the desire to get up and go and do anything. The way to get something, to get motivation 
started is to actually begin to do something. I mean, I, I find this sometimes. I, I want to prepare a sermon. What, how, what, do I, what am I going to preach? I, I don't always know what to preach. Well, sometimes just write a few words down. Just start writing something down, and then, the, then it will start to come. And that's true for us all in all our walks of life, isn't it? The tender love and the tough love of Paul to Timothy. Remember. But then we see the last thing I said of these imperatives. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And that takes me to my last point. Self-control and God the Son. You see, somebody might say this evening, you've just been spouting psychology tonight. It's all psychotherapy. It's just cognitive behavioral therapy in a church. There seems to be nothing particularly Christian about what you're saying. And then you might say to me, well, there are all sorts of people who can practice self-control. Not just Christians. In fact, you and I might know some people who are very self-controlled, very disciplined, very sober-minded, and they're not Christians at all. And they put many Christians to shame with their ability to control themselves. We might even say this. Some of the most wicked crimes ever committed against humanity have been carried out by men and women with cold calculation and rigid self-control and discipline. Is this all we can say about the subject? No, it's not. Far, far from it. Because, you see, this spirit of power and love and self-control is the spirit with a capital S that perfectly animated and governed the life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself before it animated and governed the lives of his people. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Christ. And we are looking at Jesus Christ. Who is and who was Jesus Christ? The Spirit-filled man, the man of the Holy Spirit par excellence, Jesus Christ. The Spirit that animated and governed Jesus throughout his life and ministry was the Spirit of power, wasn't it? It meant that as he preached, the vast crowds were hanging on his every word, and they said, who is this? A new teacher with a new authority and a new power. Even the demons are cast out by him. Even the wind and the waves are subject to his authority. Even the dead answer when Jesus calls them. He cried out to Lazarus with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, come out of your grave. And by the spirit of power, Lazarus came out of that grave. And then the spirit which animated Jesus throughout his life and ministry was the spirit of love. 
See how he loved his father. See how he delighted to spend long hours in fellowship and communion with his father. See how his love to the father was demonstrated in his willingness to go to the cross. See how Jesus loved his disciples. See how Jesus loved the rich young ruler. We're told that, aren't we? Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. Even though he let him go away, he he loved him. See how Jesus loved the tax collector and the sinner and the woman caught in adultery. See how Jesus even loved those who nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See how his love is shown to you and to me in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm saying to you tonight that the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of power and love and self-control that is given to us. And then you see, coming back to self-control, the Spirit which animated Jesus throughout his life and ministry was the Spirit of self-control. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that amazing verse. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, to be taken up into glory, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There was in our Lord with the power and with the love that spirit of adamant that said, I must go to Jerusalem, and there I must suffer, and there I must die, and there I must be buried. There was that constant and unyielding determination to carry out the will of his Father. As our Lord Jesus prays in that great high priestly prayer, he says this, you may remember, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Maybe some of us here can look back over part of our lives and say, you know, there was a period of a few years which, which seemed to go fairly well, and I had a job, and I carried it out, and I could say with my hand on my heart, I did what I was asked to do. I, I did my best. I, I, I ran a good race, we might say. We might say it and then say, but of course there were some areas where I, I really fell very far short and uh, I cut corners and I, I, I betrayed trust even and I didn't do as well as perhaps people think I did and I know I've not really done as well as I might have done in that area of life. We may feel like that about our lives. But Jesus alone can say this. I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You see, in Jesus Christ, in his perfect, sinless, spirit-filled life, which culminates in him laying down his life for his sheep, we find the fulfillment of everything written about him in the Old Testament. The psalmist who says, Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. Who can say that and mean it perfectly? No one but Jesus. The prophet who 
looks down the timeline of history and sees this figure seven centuries down the line into the future and says, as it were, speaking with the Lord's words, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. This is Jesus, filled with the spirit of power and love and self-control to an infinite and full extent. Now, as I close, my question is, what's all this got to do with you and me in the run-of-the-mill, humdrum details of our lives? How does this apply to your life and mine? It applies like this. It all comes down to our union with Jesus Christ. It all comes back to the fact that we are united to Jesus Christ. This spirit of verse 7, the spirit of power and love and self-control, whose spirit was it? It was first the spirit of Jesus Christ. But that same Spirit is the Spirit that is poured out on the day of Pentecost, that great flood that is poured out into the hearts and lives of all God's people. To Paul, to Timothy, but to you and to me as well, if we are united to Jesus Christ. And what effect does that Spirit have upon your life and mine? Well, we read from Titus, didn't we? Chapter 2, let me read verse 13. Paul says there of the effect of this Spirit, training us. And it's an ongoing training, isn't it? Don't we find that? It's an ongoing training. Training us day by day. Two steps forward, one step back. Six steps forward, five steps back. Sometimes more, but we are ever being trained. Trained to do what? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to say no to them, to learn to say no to temptation, and instead to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask the question, what is the spirit of self-control to be directed towards? Is it just about feathering our own nests, about saying, what a good life I'm leading? Aren't I successful? Aren't I productive? Aren't I a paragon of self-control? No, it's not about that. It's having the very spirit of Jesus, which says, I want to glorify God. I want to make him known. I want to have the spirit of Christ in me and in my brothers and sisters so fully, so overflowing, that people all around will look at us and say, these people have been with Jesus. There's something about these people. There's something different about them. They know their God. There's something in their hearts and in their lives that I want to have. By our lives and by our words, you see, we make the gospel known. 
and that includes our lives of godly and Christ-like self-control. Like the Father, filled with the Spirit, following the pattern of the Son. Remember these things as we go into this new week. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord our God in heaven, as we come now, we pray that you would forgive us, O Lord, our many sins, the sins where we have gone our own way, where we have listened to a tempting voice of passion, of worldliness, of fear, of envy, of anger, of lust, of whatever it may be. We come back to the cross of Jesus Christ and see the blood that was shed for us. We see that only that blood can cleanse us and make us right. But we pray that we would rightly understand that we as your children have been given a spirit of your power and of the love that is yours and in our hearts and a spirit of self-control. Oh Lord, help us meditate on these things and live lives that glorify your perfect and holy name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.